Welcome to the Open Deeply podcast, where guests open up and dive deep into the vulnerable experiences that shape them. We believe life storytelling has power, the power to heal and inspire others. Your journey towards finding your sexual and personal truth starts now. Here are your hosts, Sunny Megatron and Kate Laurie. Welcome to Open Deeply. I'm Kate Laurie. I'm a sex-positive psychotherapist with a specialty in trauma, and my co-host is Sunny Megatron, who is an award-winning sex educator with a specialty in kink. Because we intend to have some kinky guests on in the near future, today's episode is going to be a kink discussion just between Sunny and myself, and our next episode is going to be a kink storytelling episode, which should be super fun. Now, Sunny has endless accomplishments across her career, but here are a few related specifically to kink. Sunny began teaching about BDSM in 2010. Her area of expertise is in the soft skills, which center around things like ethics, cultivating self-awareness, and strategies for effective communication. She received a Frost Certificate of Gratitude in 2020, honoring her service to the King community, was voted Ex-Biz Sexpert of the Year in 2021, and Kinkley's Sex Blogging Superhero in 2017. Her alternative sexuality-focused podcast, American Sex, was awarded the ASAC Podcast Award in 2020. Sunny also creates curriculum about BDSM for sexuality professionals. Some of her most recent projects include designing and teaching the BDSM unit for a well-known sex educator certification program, plus a lesson for the Sexual Health Alliance Kink Informed Certification Program for therapists and other care professionals. Sunny's first book, Customizable Kink, a strategic guide to erotic play is scheduled to be released in 2022. And as for myself, I've been doing therapy since uh, 2003, but I've specialized in the kink, non-monogamous sex worker and LGBTQIA plus communities since 2011. Before we get started with our kinky discussion, let's clarify when sadistic or masochistic behaviors might be diagnosable or more indicative that someone is being abused or abusing others. According to the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, sexual sadism and sexual masochism are sexual interests, preferences, fantasies, urges, and behaviors outside the norm but they are only diagnosable if the fantasies and sexual urges are causing clinically significant distress or impairment in social, occupational, or other important areas of functioning, or in the case of sadism, if the individual has acted out these sexual urges upon someone without getting their consent. My peer and friend psychotherapist Ryan Witherspoon identifies one litmus test to differentiate between BDSM and abuse. Can you still function as a citizen in everyday life while leading a BDSM lifestyle? When someone loses their financial independence, their ability to communicate with outsiders, or if their BDSM play harms their body as to make them sick or unable to leave the house. These are all cases of abuse. And I need to remind you that Open Deeply Podcast is not therapy or a replacement for therapy. If you feel like you're being abused, please get help. 
call a friend, a therapist, or an emotional support hotline such as 800-273-TALK-8255. So the purpose of Open Deeply Podcast is to use vulnerable life storytelling as a means to heal, inspire, teach, and reduce shame around the topics that are most difficult for us to discuss. Sex is hard enough to discuss. Discussing kink gets even more difficult. So today, Sunny and I are going to dive deep into the kinky side of things. So maybe we can start off by talking about how we both first discovered BDSM. Ooh, I like it. So who's going to go first? Ah, either one. I mean, okay, let's just, you know, I can start with the baby end of the pool. That would be me. Because, you know, as we've said, I'm kind of baby kink to someone like you. I'm kind of more in the deep end if you compare me to somebody who's never delved into kink. You know, I mean, there was a lot of little baby moments in my backstory, you know, where maybe I was invited to a party or this or that. But it really started when I was in a tribal belly dancing group. And it turned out the gals in the tribal belly dancing group were a bunch of BDSM slave girls. And so after we would dance I'd get sushi with all of them and at the time I kind of looked like an OC blonde and they were all these raven-haired tattooed beauties with porcelain skin and I would listen to their tales of what their doms were you know asking them to do and and all the titillating stories and and frankly I was getting my you know degree as a therapist at the time and you know at the time I was like are they recapitulating abuse, you know, you know, I was I was wondering those kind of things. So that was before I actually even had an experience that was kind of like one of my first experiences, even hearing like deeper stories of what goes on. Yeah, yeah. For me, I got into kink later in life, which surprises a lot of people. I had always had some kinky inklings, Uh, you know, since I can remember my first sexual thoughts, they were kinky. And I just thought I was weird. Then as I got older, as I lived my life, went, had some childhood abuse, that sort of thing. Then I started thinking I must be thinking this, you know, dark, dark, but very hot stuff because <laughs> I'm I'm messed up, I'm damaged, it's because I've been abused. You know, I thought all those things. G- grew up, lived my life, had some vanilla relationships, always had that desire to be kinky, had no idea there was a kink community out there, nothing. And then in my uh, early 30s, when I found myself single for the first time in my adult life, I was like, you know, I'm going to see what's out there. I'm going to see if people are really doing this. Maybe there's something to it. I had come to terms with the fact that I'm not like this because I'm damaged. I'm actually like this because some of my earliest sexual memories were like this. This is just the way I am. And, you know, I hopped on the Internet. I met some folks. You know, luckily, I met some good folks. And that's how I discovered kink. How old were you? Uh, about 30, early 30s, like 32, three, something in that neighborhood. Yeah. See, yeah. And when I was taking that tribal belly dancing class, I was around the same age. So you kind of figured it out faster than I did, you know, and I will have to say when I was around 20, that's when I discovered the Anne Rokalor beauty series books. Oh, yes. I and- read that when I was 24. And I was like, oh, my God. But I just thought I was sick in the head why I thought that because like everybody had those books I couldn't be the only one but so 
what's so funny is I didn't judge myself. So I read like a couple of those books. And from that point on, really to date, a lot of my sexual fantasies were very much inspired. Like in my head, even though in real life I'm switchy, in my head, my sexual fantasies tend to be more in that submissive position and include a lot of men. (laughs) Um, Where I'm kind of like the princess, you know? But I didn't judge myself. And so it's funny that in my 30s, when I was, you know, first exposed to those tribal, you know, slave girls that I, I, you know, wondered if they were re- recapitulating abuse, which I quickly got over, by the way. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I worked it out and realized it's way more complicated than that. And I laugh when I think back on that. But yeah, I had been, you know, having kinky fantasies for a good 10 years before I ever did any kind of tribal belly dancing. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. Just, you know, when I discovered that there were people out there that were kinky, I was like, you know, and of course, then all the stereotypes that I had, and I had the same stereotypes as you, I'm sure like, what's wrong with these people? They're abusing each other. They, they must be, you know, have abusive pasts and they must be messed up. Are they on drugs? Yeah. I thought all those things. And, you know, once I I got to know folks in the, in the kink community and I started to understand kink, it still wasn't for me. And which is kind of surprising because what we see in the mainstream, right? We see slave girls, people are wearing black, everybody's serious. There are, you know, people being called sir and ma'am and there's protocols and, and that's cool. I'm not going to diss that, that for some people, that's their jam and more power to you. That's just not my aesthetic, not my style. And, and when I first discovered kink and I discovered there was a kink community, which I had no idea, It was, I had lived in an area that was somewhat rural, so there wasn't a lot of diversity and variety, and that's what I found, you know, very traditional, the men are the masters, and you know, and I was like, this is not my thing. How how old were you then? (laughs) That was in my early 30s. Okay, that was when I first discovered kink, and I was like, "Mm," like, I, I like the idea of kink, but this aesthetic isn't for me. And yeah. I didn't know I hadn't I I had other choices at that right. point. What's so funny is I was in LA and kind of had the same experience. You know, I was being exposed, you know, the LA kind of kink scene. And and I was lucky enough to start out with some of the people that were kind of like, you know, like this one couple that I was hanging out with were kind of like the king and queen of kink at the time in Los Angeles. So I was being, you know, brought to some of the coolest parties and all that. But still it was a little kind of I don't know how should I say there was something about it that just kind of felt I don't know like you're supposed to do it as yeah like you're supposed to do it it a certain way mm -hmm. and it wasn't you know I talked about this I briefly in in my bio episode but it wasn't until I had a lover that he could have he looked very wholesome like I, I said in my first episode he was when I was a child he was on the front of my teen beat magazines you know very you know he was like you know, and and he was dominant and it was just very organic and you would never guess. He didn't look like kind of a bar sinister kind of person, which is a club in L.A. that has a lot of goth people. He didn't look like that stereotype. He just looked very wholesome, really. But it was organic to him. And it was kind of like having him as a lover. It just flipped a switch where I'm like, oh, I can enjoy being submissive. 
And then later on, I had a lover that where I organically found out that, you know, being dominant is just so creative and fun. Right. That was more like in my like 35 to 40, probably. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I my I don't know. My experience, I guess, is a little different. There are some people that are like, okay. The way you do kink is kind of weird. Like my tagline, the thing that I've been saying forever is kink is customizable. All of those rules, like when we said when we first encountered the kink community and it was like very performative and there's a certain way you have to do things and a certain way you have to dress and a certain, that's one aesthetic. That's kind of like saying if you're going to go pick out your clothes and like kind of the vibe you're going to give off, the only choice you have is to be goth. Right. And that's ridiculous. People are all different styles, all different moods, all different expressions. And really kink is the same way. And the reason that one archetype is perpetuated, at least in my opinion, is it's, you know, we like stereotypes, first of all. And it is sexy and mysterious, right? Oh, it's so serious and cruel and punishing. and But for me, my kink is not sexual, very rarely. I do not get sexual gratification from kink. I get mental gratification from kink, which to me is just as satisfying as sexual gratification. Like it's different, but it's just as good, maybe even better. You've spoken on that, that you, when you talk, I mean, you've told me that you mostly talk about the power dynamic way more than the sexual dynamic. Yeah. And I mean, it's the power dynamic. It's what's happening to the body. You know, kink really is, if I were to break it down, it's a bunch of different things. It's improv. It's fun. It's play, which like play, people go, okay, yeah, it's play, whatever we call like adult play. But really, there is a whole neuroscience devoted to studying why play is a profound you know, a process for all humans at all ages. Like it does very specific things that we need as humans. Now you're talking about the difference between like, you know, or the same, the sameness of, you know, playing with toys as a child versus playing with toys within the BDSM realm. Very Absolutely. different types of toys. <laughs> but it's it's the same. Like kink uh, educator Midori, whom I love, her definition of kink And when I heard this, I was like, yes, it's childlike play with adult sexual privilege and really cool toys. And that's (laughs) what it is. You're tapping into that headspace that you had when you were, you know, in third grade on the playground. And all of your inhibitions are gone. And you're like, okay, so I'm going to be a superhero. And then you're going to be, and then maybe, you know, you're like, oh, but I don't want to be the villain. I actually want to be the person who's kidnapped. And then you save me. Okay, then we'll do that. All right. And you're just like totally in it. That's Mm -hmm. what kink is. It's tapping into that creative, playful headspace. But we're adults and some of us choose to mix it with sex and eroticism. That's really the only difference. There's, you know, a lot of comparisons to people who play tabletop role playing games, Dungeons and Dragons, which I do, you know, people who are Renaissance fair people are like, you know, war reenactment people, people who do LARPing, which is live action role play. There's a running joke that kink is fuck LARPing. <laughs> That's what it is. And 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 when you tell people that they're like, oh, I thought I had to wear, you know, latex and blah, blah, blah. No, it's all in your head. 
it, it you do not need implements, items, whatever to do kink. And kink doesn't have to be serious. I dress as a clown when I kink. I am ridiculous when I kink. There is just as much laughter as screams in my kink. And a lot of people are like, whoa, that's not what I thought kink was at all. Right. They don't they know kink- about clown kink. I mean, right. clown kink is a big thing. Like I've been right. to a lot of clown kink parties. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And it's like, you know, again, the, the, the two things that I say over and over, one, kink is customizable. And two, there are much less rules in kink than people assume they are. And when I say people, I mean people who are within kink communities, who are very entrenched in that lifestyle. And you don't have to be involved in a community to be kinky. Just a lot of people are, but not everyone. The only rule in kink that applies across the board to everyone without a doubt is consent. And how you go about establishing that consent, that is also customizable. I mean, at least out in Los Angeles, so many people that are kinksters were in drama club in high school. Mm-hmm. You know? Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's people that are, you know, at least a lot of the people I know, you know, are incredibly creative. You right. know, like my dear friend Hudsey Han, you know, she, mm-hmm. you know, she, She's a singer. She's all the different types of creative. And and so, of course, you know, being a dom as long as she was, was just she was just a pea in a pot. Exactly. She was so happy in it because being a dom allowed it allowed so much creativity. For mm-hmm. her, you know? Yeah. So you're talking about both the, you know, it's interesting to talk about both the physical and the psychological lens, you know, and, and I can really relate to what you're talking about, about the psychological lens. Like, like for me, you know, again, as you know, being, you know, more on the switchy side, if I'm in the Dom role, the reason I like it is because it's so psychological. And before I became a therapist, I was um, an events coordinator at two different jobs. And so I have a really, this is an old reference, but I have a very strong inner Julie Cruz director. You know, and so like to <laughs> yes. be a dominant, to be in that role, is just so much fun because you can orchestrate an experience for someone else and be super creative. And I just love that. Right. And, you know, one of the ways that I explain kink in, in my classes, which really sort of frames it, you know, in, in all of my classes, no matter if it's a an advanced class or a one-on-one class, I start with reframing BDSM. Because people think they know, oh, it's bondage and discipline, dominance and submission and sadomasochism. Okay, that's the definition. And I like more of Midori's definition, you know, childlike play with adult sexual privilege and better toys. And how I explain that is kink is, and when I say kink, I don't necessarily mean all of it. I mean kink that has any sort of psychological element. So that is any time you have dominance and submission in your kink, which is most of the time for people, but it doesn't, some people don't do dominance and submission in your kink, and that's completely possible. So I'm talking about like DS sort of kink. There is always a psychological element, whether you realize it or not. And so the analogy I use is this roller coaster analogy. So let's say I'm the dominant and you're the submissive and we're going to negotiate a scene, right? But instead of being BDSM people, I'm a roller coaster engineer and you're my writer. And it is my job as the roller coaster engineer to sit down with you, say, 
okay, you know, what kinds of things do you like in roller coasters? And let's say you tell me that you love corkscrew turns and that big plunge where like you go downhill, right? And you tell me that you hate dark tunnels and the water splash ones. Like you hate those. Okay, cool. So now it's my job. And that's that represents like our negotiation. Like how are we going to play? Right. So it's my job to then go, go away and think, you know, plan my scene and to adhere to what you told me you like and what you told me you don't like. But not only am I an engineer where I know the logistics of this is the way I need to put this together, but a good roller coaster engineer is also a user experience designer. So I know what headspace is my rider in when they're waiting in line and they're really excited and what's happening with their dopamine. And, you know, maybe I designed the waiting area with certain colors and certain music to create a mood. You know what I mean? And I am arranging the specs that you told me and avoiding the ones that you don't like. I'm arranging them in a certain way that sort of plays out like a symphony and in a way that still feels like a surprise to you. You know, when I listen to you talk, Mm -hmm. like, so so I started to just track my body as you were talking. And I noticed when you describe BDSM, my, you know, like, you know, bondage, discipline, whatever, my, my body kind of clenches up. But as Mm -hmm. soon as you start to, as soon as you said Midori's definition, I could feel my body just like go into a playful space, like, like light, like almost like a little kid, like, yeah, you know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you're talking about roller coasters and my body's like, yeah, that sounds great. Yeah, it was the same way. I was like, this is not what I thought it was. And I was like, oh, I'm going to customize my own kink. Okay. So anyway, so I'm arranging these things in a way for you that still feels like a surprise. And my job is to make you go on an emotional and physiological, like a mental roller coaster, right? And just like on a real roller coaster, of course, I am using physical stimuli to do that. But ultimately, I am affecting the chemicals in your brain. I'm affecting what's going on with your nervous system. And I happen to be using physical stimuli to do that. It isn't when you're riding a roller coaster, it isn't about the physical roller coaster. It's about how you feel. So kink is the same way. So I want my goal, if I have a really good scene with some strong psychological components, which a lot of dominant submissive play does, my goal is to get you to a point when you're on that roller coaster where I have completely suspended your reality. And maybe for a second, you're like, wait a minute, I trust Sunny. I know we negotiated and I know she's not going to do something like messed up. But holy shit, I feel like this roller coaster might turn into a runaway car and jump the tracks and I might fly like I don't know what's going on that's where I want to get you that's my goal and then when the roller coaster comes to a close and goes back into the station I'm gonna make sure that I you know hold my hand out for you I help you off of the roller because you're gonna feel dizzy you're gonna feel not in your head that's the aftercare that's me helping you acclimate back to the real world. And that's really what BDSM is. So when I was talking about like the physical, the physical can be floggers, uh, paddles, you know, whatever you're using can also be sex. But sex is one tool in your toolbox. You don't have to use any tool in your toolbox. I can just use a flogger. I can just psychologically twist your head around and not touch you at all. 
That's right. what BDSM is. Yeah. And and so, but but all the while, if somebody wanted to get off that roller coaster, they could. You know, by just saying their safe word or their safe nonverbal. So it's not like, it, it's not, that's, you know, maybe that's where the the metaphor ends, right? Like if you were on a runaway roller coaster, like how would you stop that thing? Right. But within BDSM, you know, it's always consensual. So you can stop anytime you want to if it gets too much or and then the aftercare. So what are some of your experiences helping someone in the aftercare? Like after you do a scene, like how does that range? It's all over the board. A lot of people think you have to do aftercare. It has to be you're going to cuddle with your submissive and you're going to give them soup and rub their head. And if that's what you've negotiated, that's great. But that's not the only way to do it. Aftercare should be negotiated. Absolutely. Before you do a scene, you should have that planned out. However, some people's aftercare is legitimately no aftercare. And that's okay as long as you've negotiated it ahead of time and those expectations are established. A lot of another common misconception is that the dominant gives the submissive aftercare and, you know, that's it the dominant oftentimes will need aftercare too. You know, I, I identify as a psychological sadist and I like mind fucks and like really dark psychological things, but also mixed with laughter. Um, it's like a sadistic erotic, you know, episode of punked or something. I've seen you do that when you went to the um, stock room. Oh yeah. 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 And, and so you know, especially dominants who feel like, oh, like I really dished it out for you. A lot of times they might need reassurance. Like I need to know when I'm done that I really didn't go too far, that you really don't think I'm an asshole, that I really did a good job. Maybe that I brought you to where you needed to go. Like oftentimes dominance in that position will feel really shitty and start to get imposter syndrome. And, oh, did I make the right decisions? Did I make the right call? Was that okay? So any partner in in the interaction could need aftercare. And that's something that should be negotiated ahead of time. You know, and if your aftercare is no aftercare, then you need to figure out, okay, if one partner needs aftercare and the other one's like, my aftercare is leave me alone. I need to be by myself. Then you need to talk about and figure it out. Can can that person give themselves aftercare? Can they maybe call a friend? You know, that sort of thing. Yeah. I mean, at this point, I've known you for a while and I would imagine doing that kind of psychological sadism a lot of it is that your sub knows you and trusts you you know because like when I saw you do that scene at the stock room you know it's like like one thing I trust in you I trust you to be funny I trust you to bring in the fun you know and I know that that is always going to be a thing even when you're in a bad mood it's just consistent you know and I would imagine your subs know that as well and like when you did that scene at the stock room you were doing something that was like fucked up. Like, I don't remember what it was, but yeah, I'm sure it was. It was yeah. If to, well, for lack of better words, some really tension, fucked but up. The, but the thing is, you have you you so consistently are a safe person that I could see people allowing a situation that that is um, stress inducing, but really trusting that they're going to be okay on the other side. Yeah, and they will yeah. be because it's you. You know, a lot of people, I'm imagining listeners hearing that, like, I just don't get it. And for listeners going, I just don't get that, 
Explain to me why you watch Dr. Pimple Popper, why you watch Fear Factor, why you go to escape rooms, why you do those intense practical jokes like on, on Ashton Kutcher, you know, punked. He makes people think they've, they're losing their house and like really horrible things. And then when the jig is up and he's like, ah, and he pops out of the bush, you're on punked. Everyone, you know, oh my God, I thought I lost my house and I was bankrupt. That was a good one. That was so funny. That's Even exactly what it was. Crying a minute watching, before. Watching you do that demo at the stockroom was like watching someone go through a haunted house. Like yes. they're they're feeling yeah. tense, but they're having a great time at the mm-hmm. same time. But like all of these things that, you know, quote unquote vanilla people do that, you know, ghost pepper challenge. You see people like they're they're puking, eat it, but I'm going to eat another ghost pepper. Um, <laughs> there, there's uh, there's study on this now. It, it's been coined as benign masochism and that humans go after this. There, There is this fascination that humans have with putting their body in that fight or flight sort of state. And it does all sorts of things to like your nervous system and, you know, your dopamines and your endocannabinoids and like all of these things, oxytocin, all your chemicals are going haywire. And it's having your body go through that because your body doesn't know the difference. Like, is this real? Am I really dying? It's just reacting. But your brain does. Your brain knows like, oh, this is just for fun. I'm safe. And so there's this inherent attraction in a a huge scary risk that we know is safe and what that does to our brains and what that does to our nervous systems. And really, it's the same thing with BDSM. We're just doing it. Maybe we're adding sex to it or we're doing it with a certain aesthetic. But vanilla folks, you do it all the time. When you watch Steel Magnolias and you sobbed and cried at the end and put yourself in this miserable emotional state because she's dying and the kids, it's the same thing. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll have to say, I it makes me think of when I was about 25 and I did a, a tandem jump, you know, skydiving, and and you free fall, and they don't tell you this, but you can't breathe, at least I couldn't, during that free fall. And then when it opened, there's the two little cords on either side, and you can spin to the left and to the right, and I was just giggling like I was three years old, and then I landed and I was safe. You know, and on the other side of that, not only was there this whole journey and and all the neurochemicals that you're talking about, but afterwards, I had higher self-esteem for the rest of my life. Yes. And and ever, ever since then, it's like if I get in a hard spot, I'm like, you jumped out of an airplane. You can get through this, too. And I hear a lot of subs saying the same thing, like when they get through something that's a big ride like that. And and they're with a, a dom that they they really trust and all of that, that a lot of times they feel better about themselves on the other side. Absolutely. And, you know, that's a, a huge misconception, especially with masochists who enjoy pain or that's really the I guess the simple way of putting it, enjoy pain. But if we take apart enjoy pain, a, a lot of folks think that means Well, I've heard that masochists have a really high pain tolerance and their body is wired funny where they feel pain is pleasure. It's like they're a sink where the plumber mixed up the hot and the cold water and and it doesn't work that way, right? Are there some masochists that actually enjoy the pain as they're feeling it? 
Absolutely. But again, kink is customizable and hence every one of our experiences is different. There are plenty of masochists that while they are being hit or electrified or, you know, whatever's happening to their body, they hate it. They don't have a high pain tolerance. They're like, oh my goodness, this is horrible. But it's what you were saying. They like the after effects, whether it's the like the chemical after effects, whether it's the, hey, I got through that. I can get through everything after effects. Some people like pushing and challenging their bodies. And to people who say like, that sounds really dangerous and unhealthy. Okay, triathlete. Okay, marathon runner that pukes at the side of the running trail. You know, <laughs> I, I mean, it, it's no different. It's just that is socially acceptable masochism. And BDSM is socially unacceptable masochism. But they're actually the same. We're doing the same thing, just through a different method. One thing that I really like when I have a dom is I like a dom that has a, that's conscientious. Like I can tell that he or she is not just being ego-based and just doing things for themselves, but they are really taking the time to attune with me and they're, they're being careful. And especially if they're doing a, a, a scene that like touches on any kind of psychological stuff that's tender with me, they're being sweethearts and really listening to what that means to me. So when they play out the scene, it's an attunement rather than a re-traumatization. Like that kind of care is, is yes. part of what makes it magic. Yeah. And, and, you know, that's where things get really sticky, I guess, because the way I'm talking about kink, the way we're both talking about kink, we're making the assumption that there are no ulterior motives, that all people have everyone's best interests at heart. They are, you know, good actors. They're not bad actors. They're not abusive, et cetera. And in that case, when that happens and you have a good partner that has the good communication skills to to take the time out to figure out what you need, they're not just in it for themselves, what they can get out of it, what they can take from you. It can be a magical, transformative experience. The problem is in the real world, it's it doesn't work like it does in theory Oftentimes we meet people who are bad actors, people who are abusive, maybe people who have the best of intentions, but they don't have the emotional capacity or the, you know, those soft skills to be able to really thoughtfully execute an, a mutually beneficial experience for them and their partner. And so that's where things can go really wrong. And that's why in kink, we say there is no safe kink. You can negotiate. You can do all the safe words. You can make sure you have every safety measure in place. But we're humans and we're not perfect and mistakes happen. And some of us are assholes and we don't realize that. And it can be very unsafe at the same time. So that's the risk we have in BDSM. Yeah, mm -hmm. there are clients that come to me and they've chosen a dom and maybe that's become their partner for, you know, several years. Sometimes it takes them maybe three years to realize that they, that it hasn't felt like healthy kink to them, that it feels mm -hmm. more like abuse. And they come to me right. because they have PTSD and I have right? to do EMDR to lift the trauma out of their body. You mm -hmm. know, it's like, sometimes it's hard to know. 
And sometimes, you know, that's an extreme where it's like super negative, but sometimes it's kind of in the middle. I mean, I know that for me, I had a partner for a while and we did all kinds of different kink scenes that were super fun and super creative. And sometimes he was dominant and sometimes I was dominant, you know, and we, you know, and, you know, he was switchy too. So we did all these different things, but then there was this towards the end of our relationship, you know, because he, he was, he grew up um, Greek and in the church when he was little, he always had to once a, once a week, he had to um, admit that he masturbated in order to continue to be in the choir. So he had a whole thing around that. And so sometimes I would pretend I was some kind of religious figure and he would be in a submissive position and he would be consenting, right? What he didn't tell me until the very end of our relationship, or not confessing. Okay. And, and then towards the very end of my relationship with him, he admitted that during the time that he was confessing, sometimes in his head, that he was really confessing about times that he had cheated on me. <gasps> oh, no. And so I'm sitting there like it. Uh, so in other words, like that's an example, like you were talking about sometimes Dom's need aftercare. You know, Dom's can get traumatized, too. Like that was super traumatizing to me. Yeah. You know, not yeah. just because he was cheating on me, but because basically that whole scenario was non-consensual. Like if I had, like I would have never accepted his quote unquote confession if I knew that was what he was confessing to. You know what I mean? So, so that's an example of things being a little bit of both because I had a million different, not a million, a lot of different experiences with him that were so fun and so positive, but then that one piece was so traumatizing. So you can have just one partner where it's mixed, where some like it's largely amazing. And then there's this one piece that later on like leaves you really sad, you know? And and, and that's really just like any other vanilla relationship. We're humans. We are, you know, we do things that we shouldn't do. We're not always like the most ethical, the most thoughtful all the time. Uh, You know, people have had relationships where you can say the same thing. Most of the time it was great, but there were those couple of times, those couple of instances or things that were like, oh, that's really messed up. And that messed me up. So that's kink isn't unique, you know, because of that it's because we're humans playing, whether we're doing it kinky or vanilla, there's no difference. And, you know, one of the things you had said, like how he was doing the religious and having the guilt and da, 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 even without the cheating part, because that's a whole nother layer. But one of the things that we do in kink, in dominant submission play really is what we are doing is we are perverting social norms and hierarchies for our pleasure. We are subverting the supposed tos, the expectations, that sort of thing. And and we get a lot of enjoyment in it. And it's it's fascinating talking about a lot of this stuff, you know, and I can get into like, oh, the, you know, neuroscience behind blah, 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 and all this stuff is happening to your body and and your nervous system and da-da-da. But the cool thing is for for kinksters. You don't have to know this is happening. You don't have to sit and go, now I need to analyze why I feel this way and blah, blah, blah. And some people enjoy that. They're like, oh, I'm such a geek. I want to figure it out. Oh, my psychology. And other people are like, 
that ruins it. This is escapism for me. This is not serious. If I have to think about why and what it's doing to me, then that makes it serious and that ruins it. So for a lot of this stuff, and and when I say a lot of this stuff, I'm I'm not talking about super extreme things. They fall into another category, super triggering things, but sort of your mid-level kink It's kind of like when you're at your computer and you're doing your thing and a thing pops up and it's like, oh, there's an operating systems update that needs to happen right now. But you know what? It's going to happen in the background. You can go ahead and continue working on whatever you're working on and that update will just happen. You're getting that systems update when you think you're just playing and having fun and tuning out and you don't have to know it's happening. Yeah. And I find a lot of times, you know, at at least when, you know, as a therapist, sometimes people start psychoanalyzing some kind of aspect of their sexuality or their kink, kind of, how should I put it? Like pathologizing themselves? Huh? Kind of pathologizing themselves? Yeah, where where it's not necessary. It's, you can tell it's like more of a cultural, you know, there is, it's like when they start to analyze it in an intellectual way, all of a sudden, very quickly, they're shaming themselves. Right. Because really, the question behind the why, like, if you're asking yourself why, and and there, again, I'm going to say there are some cases where you need to ask yourself why in more, you know, very intense, triggering sorts of scenarios. But if you find yourself asking why, 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 and being really disturbed by it, you need to ask yourself why you're asking yourself why. And oftentimes the answer to that will be like to figure out what's wrong with me, to figure out why I like this. That's not productive. That's not how there's nothing wrong with you. You're a human, just like the vanilla people go to escape rooms and watch Dr. Pimple Popper. This is just the way instead of Dr. Pimple Popper, you're getting, you know, flogged and spanked and humiliated. You know what I mean? It, it, it's as simple as that. And it 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 makes you feel good from it, it's almost like you're hacking your nervous system, you're physiologically hacking yourself to give yourself a natural high, to manipulate your state of consciousness, to rewire neural pathways. You know, if, you know, like that, I know, you know, like what, what fires together, wires together, right? So like, if you're used to, I don't know, responding to someone being angry, in a certain way. And you've just, you know, the same way you've created that pattern over and over when you're in kink or even play, even Dungeons and Dragons, right? You can say, I'm going to be a different person. I'm going to try on a different emotion. I'm going to try a different approach. I often call scenes an emotional test kitchen because you get to be a different person in the safe container of kink. And if you were to do that in the real world, it could backfire and you could have very serious consequences that might mess up your life or your relationship or whatever. But when you're playing, it's just like the little kids on the playground that, you know, I'm going to be the superhero. Okay, you be the villain. No, I don't want to be the villain. I'm going to be this. Okay, cool. Like that's that's as far as it goes. There's no consequence. Which makes me, I can't help but think about the fact that a lot of times we eroticize things that we're scared of, whether, you know, and that can be so many different things. And a lot of times we, those things become, you know, our kinks. And if you were to do a a split screen and in one on the left-hand side, we were to play out a fear, maybe it's a fear of being raped or a fear of being humiliated, something like that. If that happened in real life, 
what would happen somatically is an increase in cortisol, rapid heart rate, feeling hopeless and helpless, you know, that kind of thing. Like it would be a triple layer cake of bad in terms of the neurobiology and the changes that happen in the body. Whereas if we go to the right side of our split screen and we play out that whole thing with kink with someone that is a good dom or what have you, and we have our safe words and our safe nonverbals and, and at the other side of something that is a role play, we, you know, we have our release and then they're giving us self-care. Now we're having a completely different somatic response. We're going from feeling some tension and then having release and maybe, you know, uh, and, you know, and then maybe feelings of love or maybe an orgasm or something on the other side. And then that's a corrective experience in comparison to what's on the left side of the split screen. Yeah. And, you know, there's a lot of theories as to why this is a good thing for us. You know, one is, is if you have read Emily Nagoski's book about burnout, um, she talks about the stress response cycle. So like nutshell is evolutionarily. And again, these are all theories, but to me, they seem to hold some weight. Evolutionarily, we were out there thousands of years ago hunting and gathering. And our big threat is suddenly a tiger is chasing us. And then, you know, our physiologically, our body goes into high gear trying to save us. And that's that fight or flight mechanism, right? And, you know, if we get eaten, well, we don't have to worry about anything again. But if we get away, that act of running away and running that off completes the stress response cycle and puts our nervous system back at rest. And the theory is now, modern times, we're not being chased by a tiger, but we're being chased by student loans and COVID and politics and our in-laws and all of these things. And we don't get to run that off and complete the stress response cycle. So we're constantly wound up. So a lot of the things that are in the book, they talk about, it can be a creative outlet. Maybe you have a hobby. Maybe you do physical exercise. Maybe you meditate, you know, all sorts of different things. Kink can be another way to complete that stress response cycle. You're artificially, you know, wiring yourself up and putting your your body in that state of panic. And then you are very intentionally and purposely in control of exactly the way that you're bringing it back down to rest. Wow. It's so interesting to listen to that as as a therapist that's trained in somatic psychotherapy. You know, with somatic psychotherapy, a lot of times you're you know, telling a therapist about some experience very slowly, the whole moment by moment, the therapist is like, what do you notice in your body now? You know, you probably won't even get through a full story of some event in your life because constantly the therapist is saying that. And usually what ends up happening, and a lot of times the therapist, like if, if somebody had pinned you down, you know, and you wish you could have pushed them off, part of it is completing the defensive response. So the therapist may have you, you know, have your hands out and slowly at a snail's pace be mimicking pushing someone off you know or, or pushing on a door or pushing on the therapist's hands and completing the defensive response which a lot of times we don't get to do and after that a lot of times people have a release like they'll they'll just start to sob or they'll they'll burp or they'll you know <laughs> right yeah or, you know some kind of somatic release but just what you describe with kink in a different vein, that's what somatic psychotherapists are doing, except with, you know, not with kink, but just through therapeutic 
somatic exercises. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's it can be very similar, but I also tell BDSM practitioners, I remind them that kink can absolutely be therapeutic. And oftentimes it is even when we don't realize that's happening. It's like that, you know, background systems update that we don't know is going on, but it's not therapy. Like when we get to the point of trying to use kink as our therapy, we run into really dangerous territory. So that's a warning I want to, you know, throw out there with people. And like just one more thing along the, the somatic vein that we're talking about is uh, I know a lot of folks and myself included that are like pain masochists for pain relief reasons, which is really weird. And, you know, again, it's not like, oh, the science is so solid on this and we know for sure, but it's theories, you know, that it's that same we're rewiring those neural pathways, but those pain pathways. So like I have chronic pain all the time. I'm a dominant too. So like I, you, you will not top me or you will top me. You will not dominate me. So I will say either in a very platonic way, like, Hey friend, can you pick up that flogger and flog my back? Because to me, it's like a massage. It feels good. And I know folks that do very extreme painful things like hook suspensions where they actually, you know, put hooks in your back, you get swung around, you know, it looks very painful. And they say that, yes, while it's happening, it hurts. Like it's not, oh, I'm enjoying this. But I've had multiple people tell me that it has an analgesic effect on their chronic pain that lasts with them for weeks. And the theory, the theory is that, you know, with that chronic pain, your pain is following that same neural neural pathway, right? So it's like it almost gets ingrained and embedded. And the more pain you have, the more sensitive your body becomes to it. So that, you know, if you have fibromyalgia or whatever it is. So the theory is that intense sensory shock to the system is almost like a reboot. It forces your body in a very uh, extreme way to forge new neural pathways for that pain. And so that's why they think, again, all theories, and I'm not a neuroscientist, so don't go quoting me in your research paper, listeners. But the theory is that that's why people are saying they have that pain relieving effect that lasts for weeks after doing extreme scenes. Wow. I've never heard that. That's fascinating. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've just always thought about like the, you know, Back in the day, you know, indigenous people, Native Americans were known to do hook suspensions as part of their spiritual practice, you know, and I I always I couldn't help but think about the link between subspace within BDSM, which we haven't even talked about yet. And 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 that, you know, and and the link of, of being able through a physiological experience that creates physiological changes in the brain or in the body that that in turn creates new natural altered states. Yeah. Yeah. It's just amazing. Like when you dive down the rabbit hole of everything that can be happening with kink, it's like, wow, you know, we are we really in a way, I hate the word hacking our bodies because it's just so obnoxious. But I mean, <laughs> we kind of are, you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> It's very, it's fascinating. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and the same is true for, you know, we, we talk a lot about the benefits to the submissive or the bottom, you know, they're receiving the pain. So this happens, but 
on the flip side, there are lots of things that happen to the dominant. Like, like you know, we, we mentioned subspace, so we'll just go there. You know, all these things happen basically chemically in our bodies with our hormones, neurotransmitters, et cetera, et cetera, that put us in an altered state of consciousness that is compared. And there has been science on this, like the science of BDSM team out of Northern Illinois University has done a lot of study on this. And they have found that subspace is very akin to other scientific studies that have found like the runner's high and, you know, what we get from meditation or yoga, that altered state of consciousness. And subspace is often described and experienced by most people as almost sort of a a euphoric disassociative state. If and vanilla people have felt this when you when your orgasmic stars align and you have that one lover that like knocks your socks off and you weren't expecting it. And it's like, you don't know your name. You're speaking in tongues. You feel like your legs are made of bees. You're like, what the (laughs) hell just happened? And it's like blissed out. That feeling is very akin to subspace. And on the flip side, you know, similar changes, physiological changes are happening for the top or the dominant, whatever you want to call yourself. They enter a state of flow which a state of flow is instead of being disassociative, it's one of of hyper focus. We think of athletes who are at the top of their game, who are at peak performance. You know, you might feel that, you know, not only has, you know, time and, and reality fallen away, like you were just in it, you are concentrating on what you're concentrating on, but almost as if you've become this like finely tuned machine. You know, maybe your flogger has become an extension of your arm and you're so in tune. I've experienced And that can that. have benefits too. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's like, you know, I also try and practice mindfulness. I also meditate. And I would like or, you know, and I've also done a lot of art in my life and I would akin when I'm really in that dom space and in 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 the best way, it is just like being it's being in mindfulness. It's being in the best place within a meditation. It's it's, you know, like people talk about being connected with source. It's like that completely centered place. And, you know, for some people, they might even feel like it's spiritual. Mm hmm. And, and like one of the things that, you know, they, they found that happens. And the, again, the science of BDSM team has found this and more and more studies are starting to coming come out on BDSM is that the activity in the the frontal lobe of the brain, like your high order executive functioning, logical brain shuts down more and you go more into like the lizard brain, the limbic system where that's connected more to emotion. It's connected more to fight or flight. So they say a lot of times with athletes, when they get into that headspace, they say, oh, I have to just be in that headspace and be in like this, this altered state. And the minute I start to like try to logically think, that's when it all goes to hell. So it's putting us in that state where we're because normally in our day to day to day lives, we we don't like to feel that we don't like to feel the fight or flight. Sometimes when we're overwhelmed with lots of emotion, we're like, oh, let me logically think about this. Oh, God. Um, And it forces us to be there and be happy about it and not resist it. Yeah, it's interesting. For some reason, I can't help but 
compare that to so many of my conversations with artists, like a lot of the artists in the entertainment industry, they are logically and anxiously trying to come up with a script or, or something like that. But when they don't have time pressure due to some boss or what have you, and they can just be connected to source as an artist, they don't have to find, they don't have to work hard intellectually. It's almost like the, the answer, the creative answer drops down into them. Yeah. I've experienced that as an art therapist, you know? Oh, yeah. And I think, you know, when you're in that dom space and you're really kind of connected to source, just like the next thing will, that will take someone on their psychological journey just kind of is given to you in a sense. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I, I've heard a lot of people say whether it's in kink or whether it's in more meditation sort of realms, you know, get out of your head. That's what I mean. Get out of your head. Get into your body. And I remember I used to hear that with meditation. I, I am one of those people. I think I'm in a constant state of like disassociation. I'm not connected to my body at all. I am very logical. And so it's hard for me to get into that space. And I, I didn't really know what that meant when I first heard, hear, heard people go like, get out of your head, get into your body. I'm like, what does that even mean? But now I get it. You know, it is helping us connect with our bodies. And so many of us aren't connected with our bodies at all. And with kink, especially if you are using the the sensory stimuli and the physical things as, you know, a tool to reach those physiological things, you are engaging the body. You are forcing that person to be present in their body. And that can be huge for so many people. You know, and I would imagine, you know, I, I know that there's a lot of people that struggle with anxiety, both doms and subs, that once they're doing a kink scene, all of that melts away. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And that's such a, that can be transformative because, you know, like, let's say, I'll give you my example, being dominant. I was very afraid. I resisted being dominant for the longest time because I had anxiety. I had imposter syndrome. I didn't think I could do it. I didn't, I don't have enough authority. What if something goes wrong? What if I don't know what to do? Ah! Once I was able to access that state, it was like, oh, this is amazing. <laughs> and I was able to take, because I got a taste of that. I was able to take a little piece of that and put it in my pocket and bring it with me when I went back out into the default world. Yeah. And I was able to take that confidence. And it's like that, I feel a lot of that happens when we're doing kink. And again, like, we don't have to know the why. This is a background systems download that's just happening and we don't know it, but it's happening. That's amazing. That's amazing. I'm starting to feel like our second episode on this, you know, I, we talked about telling stories, but I have the feeling there's so much more to discuss. So I'm, I'm, I'm guessing the second episode will be stories, but also more discussion because there's so many things we haven't even gotten to today. Yeah, let's do it. Let's keep going because yeah. we're in the flow. See, <laughs> right now we're right in now, like top space. Yeah, totally. <laughs> 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 well, you know, I've, I've learned so much today because like I said, you know, although a ton of my clients are, are kinky, you know, a lot of them are coming to me <laughs> you know, to work through trauma or to work on their relationships or other things. They just know that I'm a, a, you know, a sex positive therapist and all of that. So, you know, anytime I talk to 
a profession, you know, a, a, a dom or a sex educator that's a kink professional. You know, I always learn so much and I always learn so much from from you, too. And it helps me be a better therapist. Oh, yay. Yeah, it's that's that's a whole nother layer. I just taught for therapists last night, actually. And it's like trying to dig into the why without if your clients don't want to dig into the why, which is a whole nother that's a whole nother ball of wax. But yeah. And also sometimes they want to dig into the why because they almost want you to be complicit in shaming them, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and it's like, that's a humiliation scene right there. And they need to pay you more for that. <laughs> I mean, come on. <laughs> yeah, I won't be complicit in that, you know? <laughs> so this was a great conversation. I love talking about this stuff, you know. So listeners, as you heard, we're going to talk even more about this stuff in the next episode, and we don't want you to miss it. So if you haven't already, please go to whatever podcast player you're listening to right now and hit that subscribe button so you'll be notified when we once again open deeply. Thank you for listening. Find us online at opendeeplypodcast.com and on social media at Kate Lurie or at Sunny Megatron. Check back bi-weekly for new episodes. And until next time, remember, your authentic truth is only found when you dare to open deeply. Intro and outro voice by the queen goddess, Frenchie Davis. Intro and outro music by the Baltimore Bull, Rob Burrell.